0: Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that U.S. foreign policy and national security policy is the shield of our democratic republic. As Lippmann put it, for want of a settled foreign policy, we shall not act upon reflection and choice, but under the impulse of accidents and the impact of force. The podcast is sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. I'm Eric Edelman. I'm counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center, and a Bulwark contributor. And as usual, I'm joined with my partner in strategery, Elliot Cohen, who is the Osgood professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke chair in strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, welcome. How are you? Uh I'm doing just fine thanks. I do have to say at the uh at the
1: outset that uh, you'll be introducing our guest that uh he's actually technically my boss at CSIS but but even so the nice things I have to say are
0: sincere. With that I'm happy to introduce our guest, Seth Jones, who is not the outstanding defenseman for the Chicago Blackhawks, but in fact, uh, someone who does have a PhD from the University of Chicago, however, and who is the executive vice president of the Center for International and Strategic Studies and who is um, our Strategic and International Studies, I should say. CSIS, and who is the director of their international security program, as well as the Harold Brown chair. So he's got a lot of titles. He's also been our colleague in the strategic studies department when it existed at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Seth, welcome. Great to have you. It's great to be on. Thanks, Eric. We're here to discuss your book mostly, uh, Seth, a book called Three Dangerous Men, published recently by W.W. W. Norton, a study of General Grasimov, the chief of defense, chairman of the general staff in the Russian military, Gassim Soleimani, the late commander of the Quds force, the Iranian. Late unlamented, I think uh, you want uh, to say. Late Eric. unlamented <laughs> uh, head of the Iranian Guard Quds force. and. Zhang Yuja, the vice Chairman of the Central Military Commission, so in light of the fact that sadly Colin Powell passed away um, the other day and he was the architect uh, one of the architects anyway of the u s massive conventional victory in the uh, first Gulf War, something that all three of these men studied intensely. Tell us about these three men and why they're important and why you're writing about them.
2: Well, Eric and, and Elliot, thanks for, thanks for taking the time to talk about the book. Um, I, I was motivated in part by a story that Littleheart tells of this walk between the Irish statesman John Wilson Croker and the Duke of Wellington, the first Duke of Wellington. And he and the Duke are passing the time by trying to guess what kind of country they would find on the other side of each hill along the way. And Croker expresses the surprise at Wellington's successes in forecasting what is on the other side of of every hill. And Wellington says, well, I've spent all my life trying to guess what was at the other side of the hill. And he goes on to say that, you know, the definition of an imaginative requirement of a general is trying to guess what's happening in the head of the adversary, on the other side of the hill, behind the opposing front lines, and in the opponent's mind, and that was the primary impetus was to focus on someone other than, you know, the individuals that uh, most Americans are going to know—Xi Jinping and and uh, and the supreme leader in Iran and Vladimir Putin—but was to focus on influential military officials, those involved both in the strategy, but also in operations to some degree. So, you know, w- one of the most interesting has been uh, the look, uh, I- uh, including since his demise in January 2020 of Qasem Soleimani. As you noted, Eric, the, the head of, uh, of uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, Quds Force, the main paramilitary arm of the Iranians, and the the you know, the reason to focus on Soleimani and his successor uh Ismail Hani, Khani is you know, Iran's military conventional mil- military capabilities are weak uh and in particular uh it it has attempted to expand its power and influence primarily through irregular means through the Quds Force that Soleimani uh ran in Lebanon through Hezbollah in Syria, in Iraq, uh, in Afghanistan, in Yemen, and other countries. So Soleimani really was the architect of Iran's irregular uh, strategy, and in my view, easily the most uh, important Iranian military figure in at least a
1: generation. I was just going to jump in on that, Seth. Uh, I want to get my compliments out of the way early so that we can actually have a discussion but but I think that that is one of the things that's so striking about the book is the way in which you get inside the heads, particularly I would say of Soleimani and also well all three of them um but particularly Soleimani and it you know it's was very striking to me because when I was in government, I found it very hard to get the intelligence community. To actually do that and give answers in a satisfactory way, um, and you really, you really do. And I was just wondering if you could maybe say a little bit about, you know, what your research approach was. I mean, you've got the—I I can't believe you actually know Russian, Persian, and Chinese, but but you clearly looked at those sources. If you could talk a little bit about, you know, how how you dug into this so that you could get on the other side of the hill.
2: So there were two ways to try to understand it. One of them is through actually a pretty massive translation effort. Um, You know, some of it was essentially translating propaganda uh, uh, on the Qasem Soleimani and the Iranian side, a lot of the RGC history uh, that we translate at least parts of. I mean, the general strategy, frankly, was identifying a lot of material uh, in Persian Google translating some of it, but that which looked important, pretty serious translation effort into English. So IRGC documents speeches uh, uh, from individuals, including Soleimani, um, interviews with him, a lot of them which were not available in English. In English. So just, just, you know, in general understanding. The second was a, an extensive interview process of individuals Who worked against him, uh, um, American intelligence and special operations officials. Many of them were on the record, a lot of Israelis as well as Russians. Uh, And, uh, you know, some really interesting discussions. I I interviewed several senior Afghan, uh, now former Afghan government officials that had actually worked closely with Soleimani in the 1990s and actually were willing to share firsthand uh, uh, experiences of meetings with him, including following the death of Ahmed Shah Massoud when Soleimani flew into Afghanistan just before the US uh, sent in CIA uh, and Special Operations Forces. So that was, those are firsthand accounts of the meetings with, with Soleimani. And the, the same was true on the Russian and the Chinese side. With, with one interesting note, I found by far, in, in a sense, it surprised me. Uh, by far, the most concerning lack of information was on the Chinese. I found almost nothing meaningful in uh, that's been translated from Chinese into English uh, and most of the stuff I looked at that was on irregular warfare, asymmetric conflict was actually not that influential in China. But because it had been translated into English, it got a lot of attention. So the vast majority of the resources on the translation side, surprisingly for me, because I do speak a little bit of Russian, were in the Chinese.
0: Yeah, this is the document, the Chinese document you're talking about is the report by two colonels called Unrestricted Warfare, which did have got a lot of attention in in the US. I want to zero in for a second, if we could, Seth, on uh, the way you use uh, the term irregular warfare, because I think for some listeners, they may think, oh, that's guerrilla warfare. And you've written certainly plenty about, you know, that element in other other of your writings. But here, you're using irregular warfare in its broadest, I think, meaning. And, and it's a meaning that, as you in the book note, it overlaps or, you know, was really subsumed in some sense by George Kennan's famous essay in 1948 about political warfare, which is the use of all these different instruments, but below the kinetic threshold. For warfare. It's sometimes referred to as hybrid warfare or gray zone uh, operations. It goes by a number of names. But when we had the National Defense Strategy Commission uh, a couple of years ago that I co-chaired with Gary Ruffhead, one of the conclusions we came to is that while we're in strategic competition in the long term with uh, Russia and China, in this area of irregular warfare, which is the use of militarized uh, naval militias or fishing fleets, uh, propaganda, Uh, uh, information operations, cyber, et cetera. We're not just in competition uh, with Russia and China uh, and Iran. We're actually in conflict with them every day. And this is something that really comes out, I think, in your book. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the sort of ongoing daily conflict that we find ourselves in with all three of these adversaries and uh, at least two of the living men that you write about.
2: Yeah. So, just to start about uh, start in just the, the terminology, there there are, as you know, uh, several words that have been used: uh, gray zone activity, uh, uh, asymmetric conflict, hybrid warfare. I mean, I think the first line for me is to to look at what a range of these competitors, what terms they were using, and it and it differs. You know the the uh, the Chinese have several terms that they use. Daozheng for struggle, zhanfa uh, which is three warfares. Interestingly, for the Chinese warfare in this context, none of those elements of of the three warfare,s uh, either media or public relations, uh, psychological, and then finally lawfare. None of those elements involve the the use of violence. They're all components of information, psychological warfare, disinformation. In addition, we see the Iranians using terms like jong or narm or soft war uh, to include, this is not just uh, the soft power concept, but efforts to change the balance of power and to weaken advers- adversaries and to strengthen yourself by using multiple tools And that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about instruments below the threshold of conventional and certainly nuclear war uh, that countries use to weaken their adversaries and also to, to increase their power and influence. And so as components of that, I've got information campaigns that includes disinformation. It includes those elements of three warfares that the Chinese... Use or the active measures from uh, the Russians. It includes uh, support to state and to non-state partners. So think for a moment about the Iranian use of Hezbollah or the Hashid al Shabi in Iraq uh, or the Houthis in in Yemen to uh, to not necessarily to do the bidding of Iran, but at least to influence their actions against adversaries. Uh, and then, then there are other elements of their covert action uh, aspects of their uh, of, of their intelligence services. The GRU, the main arm of, of Russia's military intelligence unit, has used uh, a range of covert action campaigns to assassinate defectors, including in the UK. Uh, and then finally, this element of economic uh, coercion. And this is where we get into issues of the Belt and Road Initiative, for example, of China, which is much more in my view than just an economic project, but is at its core in part designed to uh, to wield political influence in areas that it is building infrastructure. So the reason all of these elements of uh, irregular warfare are important is because this is what we see on an hourly, if not a daily basis uh, from adversaries. Uh, disinformation campaigns uh, attempting to manipulate U.S. elections on U.S. platforms engaged in trying to sow sow or foment uh, disorder and chaos, Uh, targeting of U.S. forces in countries like Iraq through improvised explosive devices, including the the high-end explosively formed penetrators or EFPs, covert action, including uh, offensive cyber campaigns, and then just the daily activity of the Belt Road Initiative, and others. These are these are significant daily uh, actions. In many cases, directed at weakening the United States, weakening its alliances and and partners with Western and other countries. So that's why I see these as as an important component of competition.
1: So Seth, you know, one of the things that um, I think you do a wonderful job of. Uh, particularly in the uh, chapter, on, the chapters on Gerasimov is uh, when you look at the origins of the Russian approach to irregular warfare, it comes out of the Russians thinking that this is what the United States did to them, which I think is not what most Americans would think. And frankly, I think those of us who've been in government think the United States government would find it very hard to kind of mastermind an intricate strategy of irregular warfare. To if only we were that good. If only, if only, indeed, and I, I think that's, you know, that part is quite wonderful. So I've, I've got an uh, there are several questions along those lines I'd like to ask, but one in particular, and you address it towards the very end of the book, you know, recognizing that these are overall strategic approaches by by these three countries, and given uh, Sunza's dictum that the most effective strategy is to, to attack the other guy's strategy rather than his forces. Why do you think it is that the United States government finds it very hard to do that? You could argue that we find it, we we are finding it difficult even to identify what is happening in a kind of a comprehensive way. But why are we not nearly as effective as at least a younger version of General Gerasimov uh, thought, thought we were? Well,
2: that's a, Really good and profound question. I, I, there are probably several reasons for it. I think uh, there still remains a tendency, including in U.S. military circles, to fight and prepare to fight the war where we're on, you know, where we're the strongest and most capable. And so this is why, uh, when I've participated, as I'm sure both of you have, uh, and many others have had in war games and scenarios. Um, the vast majority of the ones involving the Russians and the Chinese are, you know, they, they're various forms, m- more modernized of the fold to gap scenarios we looked at in the cold war, except now in the Baltic States. And obviously with a, uh, uh, more sophisticated, uh, you know Russian capabilities, uh, armor, uh, standoff weapons, space-based systems, disinformation campaign. But it looks a little bit like that Russian tanks instead of rolling into Western Europe, they roll into two or three of the Baltic capitals. Same thing in the Indo-Pacific, where where the, the many of those same war games and scenarios, and they're folded, frankly, into the operational plans or O-plans. Uh, the uh, you know they look. Like somewhat modified versions of the Battle of Midway, where we have uh, U.S. You know, we, we've got air-sea battle uh, with the Chinese subs, uh, aircraft carriers, and you know the the point is that that we we obviously need to prepare for those kinds of uh, of wars. There's no question, and to deter them, for that matter. But that's that is it's we, we're on the. The, most, the strongest ground, although ironically, we don't always do that well in some of those uh, scenarios. But when you get into some of the more difficult, frankly, darker types of uh, competition involving uh, irregular forces, CIA, paramilitary forces, um, there's a lot more hesitation to conducting those kinds of warfare. And, you know, frankly, there are some negative lessons from the Cold War as well. We mined harbors in Latin America. Uh, the There certainly was the controversial uh, funding of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which, while it bloodied, the Soviets also gave weapons uh, to uh, Afghan resistance uh, fighters, and many of them who fought not long after that for Kabul and the Taliban ended up with the victor among them, but we did provide weapons to Afghan Mujahideen. So in many ways it was controversial. And I think in that sense, it still, it still makes a number of defense planners nervous to get into this aspect of warfare. It's just, you know, it's, 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 It's easier and we're generally better and we're stronger in the conventional world. That's probably one reason, I think, why we see so much attention focused there and not on other aspects. And and many of them are harder, harder to quantify as well.
1: I think I'll just throw one thought out there and then hand things back to uh, Eric. In, in so many ways, there was a kind of curse that came with the first Gulf War, because that's the war that ever after we wanted to fight in many different ways to include uh, civil military relations, but, you know, the kind of alliance uh, configurations that we had, the isolation of the opponent, you know, really, really clear-cut geographical objectives, all that sort of thing. And I think, you know, one of the problems is we keep on looking for another first Gulf War to fight, and we're not going to get A-
2: it. Elliot, if I could just add two other issues, and you raise them, there, and this is brief. One is, I found it interesting in looking at Russian military history of the Cold War, How much, particularly recently, a number of Russian uh, military theorists have concluded that they lost the war not on battlefields, which was which is which is true. They did not lose in a conventional fight, but they lost, frankly, what they considered to be an irregular campaign. They lost, uh, uh, you know, it's been highlighted, the, the CIA's program to provide assistance to solidarity in Poland uh, what was called QR Helpful. It was a cryptonym. uh, The broader um, uh, efforts in uh, Czechoslovakia and East Germany to rise up against those communist regimes. They've event- eventually interpreted the, cold, the end of the Cold War as in part an information campaign that undermined communism and led to the collapse of the Warsaw Pact as well as the Soviet Union itself. The second thing is uh, 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 is the how much Karasimov, in particular, also looked very carefully at the U.S. campaigns in Afghanistan in, in 2001, just a small number of troops that overthrew the uh, regime? Libya, 2011, small number that overthrew the the Qaddafi government. So they looked very carefully at some of the U.S. successes that used very limited troops on the ground, but extensive air power, support to militias and non-state actors on the ground, whether it was the Northern Alliance or whether it was the Libyan militias, and saw an advancing concept in how to fight warfare that they began to use for Russian purposes in eventually Crimea and Syria and eastern Ukraine.
0: You know, Seth, you point out, and I I think Elliot and I have both seen this, and Elliot just talked about it, we do have this desire to to fight the war uh, the way we want to fight it, and on, you know, essentially terrain, and I don't mean that on geographic terrain, but in terms of platforms and concepts of operation that, that favor us. But one of the things that really struck me as I read your book was how slow on the uptake we Americans have been. That these, in this case, these three guys have been waging warfare against us this way for more than a decade. I mean, I I think it goes through, to be fair, it goes through three three administrations of, of both parties. Um, now, uh, you know, long ago when Elliot and I were uh, working government together, we were very concerned about the Shabani network, which you talk about essentially in the chapter on, on Soleimani, the network he used to get EFPs into Iraq, attack our troops. It, yet we weren't able to really, you know, it took a decade before we finally killed him, um, although some of us would have advocated that back in 2007 and eight, But as a government, we've been very, very slow on the uptake including during the Obama years you point out how during the Obama years we we gave gifts as you put them to Soleimani in different at different points in time in the Middle East because of policy decisions that we made that he was able to exploit and a lot of that continued uh, in the Trump administration what do you think explains how slow Americans have been you know to register this and to realize that this is a you know a deadly serious competition that we have to take more seriously.
2: Well, I think with several instances, there was a fear of escalating. And, you know, the downside is that it sent a message to some of these governments that they could continue to operate in these ways and there would be little or no punishment. So, you provide the example of the explosively formed penetrators in the broader improvised explosive devices in Iraq that killed American forces, and there was virtually no American response to that for fear of escalation. Uh, the, there were two other striking events that the U.S. response was, 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 was almost silent. I mean, there were some sanctions, but one was... The Russian uh, retaking or taking of Crimea, and they lar- they largely used Spetsnaz uh, forces uh, and Russian intelligence and took Crimea with, with really without having to fire a shot. And yet, the Obama administration's response to that was very muted. Uh, there were limited sanctions. Um, and the similar, it was a similar event when you look at the, how the Chinese, and, and there's some interesting interesting similarities here, how the Chinese retook uh, islands in the South, uh, uh, South China Sea, well, didn't, didn't retake them, turned them into military bases. So Gavin Reefs and Fiery Cross Reefs, Mischief Reef, Hughes Reef, in, instead of, uh, of what we saw with the Russians in Crimea, the Chinese brought in dredgers. And, you know, they said repeatedly, we're just going to uh, essentially build islands here to help fishermen in the uh, uh, South China Sea and the, in the Spratlys so they can land there if they needed help. Well, what they obviously did is they turned these uh, reefs into military bases with sig- signals, intelligence platforms, electronic warfare, missiles, long runways, uh, long runways for for fixed wing fighters. And cor- correct
0: promise. me if I'm wrong, but this was explicitly after. Xi Jinping, in his meeting with, uh, first meeting, I believe, with uh, President Obama, promised President Obama that they wouldn't militarize these geographical features. And, and yet a and yet, blatant, direct lie to the President of the United States meets with, as you point out, zero consequence, zero pushback.
2: Zero consequence. just did not want to escalate with the Chinese. The, 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 the message that comes from these kinds of activities, though, is... This is just this just encouraged them to continue uh, to push uh, using those kinds of of methods because they they clearly got away with it.
1: You know, I I often wonder whether part of what what's going on here is that we are so bought into the idea of uh, deterrence, which is a separate subject that Seth, you and I've talked about. That, that that we find it hard to think about actual ongoing conflict, except you know in something that's palpably a war zone like um, Afghanistan, and you know so as a result there's a desire just not to look particularly hard at things which are in fact conflictual. We're I, I notice we're uh, we're running along, which doesn't. Surprised me. I, I was wondering if we could uh, get you to talk a little bit about your take on Afghanistan and what the end game there was like. Whether there could have been a different path for us. I mean, that's obviously a, a major event that's going to be with us for some time. Where to
2: start? There, the uh, the the lessons are significant. I mean, I, I I think two two very brief comments to start us off. One is that, I mean, there's no question there were a litany of mistakes. I mean, I lived Afghanistan repeatedly on the ground over the last two decades. There were a litany of mistakes that the Americans made in uh, trying to do, I think, far too much, trying to win a war for the Afghans with large numbers of military forces, with pushing in large amounts of money into a, you know, very poor country that didn't have the infrastructure didn't have the knowledge or capabilities uh, to do much with it. Uh, So, you know, lots of lessons on the negative side. On the positive side, there there were, I mean, Afghan society transitioned dramatically over the last 20 years. I mean, the uh, GDP growth rates increased. And it wasn't just because of foreign investment, at least military investment. It was because businesses started to, uh, uh businesses in key sectors like telecommunications uh found a niche in society we saw major progress on basic health indicators uh on infant mortality rates on uh life expectancy uh, education uh, uh you know ed- education improved the the concern that i have though with the uh the 2021 picture is how little preparation was actually done uh, by the Biden administration once the decision had been to leave, to think through worst case scenarios, and to then actually plan for the evacuation of Americans. And I say that because, um, you know, having served uh, time in the U.S. government, including in Afghanistan, the U.S. intelligence community had been warning for years that the Afghan national security forces and the government would likely collapse in the event of a complete U.S. withdrawal. So that should not have been a surprise. And U.S. intelligence analyses were warning of, of a collapse through the spring and into the early summer of 2020. As did the Afghanistan so, study group
0: that General Dunford and some others um, re- reported to um, out in the spring.
2: Absolutely, and I was part of the team also during the Trump administration. Uh, the the South Asia strategy that uh, that was put together by the administration. I was involved in uh, the unclassified and classified discussions of that. I mean, there was a significant awareness of the weaknesses of the Afghan government and the security apparatus. And so, the question is, why was so little? Uh, prepared for evacuation and why was so little thought about if the country was then going to collapse why was there not a um, much more systematic thought about well if there is a terrorism problem what? how, how are we going to deal with it what what basing access are we going to get are uh, we going to have either in Afghanistan or the region uh, what, what did our partners look like on the ground and it was this almost naive view that there was this somehow this over the horizon capabilities, the you know, technology would somehow solve uh, a counterterrorism problem in Afghanistan with no partner, with no regional bases, with almost no intelligence infrastructure. It was poor planning. And I think a, a naive view of how to conduct counterterrorism operation that, that bonded together to create some serious problems in the in the summer of twenty twenty one. Where do you think that'll leave us two years from now? When when the Islamic State retook uh, or took took territory in, on both the Syrian and the Iraqi side of the border, so it took Raqqa and and uh, Fallujah, Ramadi, Mosul. That was 2014. By 2015, the the Islamic State had a sufficient external operations capability to conduct a major attack in Paris. Um, I, I think. I would not be surprised by 2022 to see some combination of either Al Qaeda or the Islamic State capable of external operations, at least in the region. I think it would be very difficult to get pull off an attack in the United States, but in the region, including against U.S. infrastructure, um, because you know there's just such limited, uh, there's, there's so limited approaches that the U.S. can take right now. My my general view is by next year. I think they'll have uh, external operations capabilities to hit targets in the at least in the region.
1: Well, I, I, I said that was last question on my last question about Afghanistan, but actually I had one more which I wanted to sneak in, and that is, you know, when you look at the outcome, including what was in some ways quite a remarkable campaign by the Taliban. What role do you think was played by the? Pakistani ISI? Because you can argue that those that's if you wanted to have a a fourth section of your book, I think there'd be an argument for having the Pakistanis uh, in there as well. Uh, Or do you think that this was a simply a, you know, the Taliban have been playing chess for a long time and they got to be pretty good chess players? I think there
2: were at least two ways that outside assistance was important. One was by the summer of 2021, it was very clear to uh, the Afghan government and security forces that really the only regional government that was backing them with the U.S. and European withdrawals was India. That was that was about it, that the uh, Pakistan, China, the Russians, and the Iranians, and I had talked with senior Central Asian government officials who were but just at that point, they they said, "Look, I, we we think the government's uh, its life expectancy is short." I think if you're a senior Afghan official, and and it was telling that Mullah Baradar, one of the the senior Afghan leaders, was in uh, China meeting with the foreign minister, and it was all done publicly. So I think the die was cast. And so from an outside actor perspective, I think it was clear by the summer uh, that uh, if you were an Afghan. Uh, military or police or intelligence official, you were going to lose because you had no support in the region except in India. The second is Pakistan, which is, um, you know, ISI has been important to the Taliban from the beginning. Uh, For those who don't entirely remember the history of ISI and the Afghan war, at the very least, once the Soviets withdraw, ISI first uh, provides assistance to Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, and, and he fails to take the capital. So they turn to the Taliban, and the Taliban are much more effective as a military force post 2001. ISI is instrumental in providing sanctuary for the Taliban's Rabari Shura or Inner Shura in Pakistan in the Quetta area, and so it, 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 it's not yet entirely clear to what degree. Uh, ISI was involved in the war in 2021 in the retaking of Kabul, but over the last 20 years and beyond, they have been involved in providing money, uh, uh, lethal material, intelligence, and other types of support to the Taliban. Um, With a U.S. and a European departure and a strategic end goal of replacing India as the major backer of the government in Kabul. Uh, I I think I would be shocked if ISI was not involved in various aspects of support to the Taliban. What it actually looked like, it's not entirely clear yet, but I suspect they were involved in uh, various types of material support, intelligence, money, uh, and certainly encouragement, um, including a, a strategic encouragement to the Taliban.
0: You know, one of the arguments that President Biden has made, and, and uh, as well as Secretary Blinken and National Security Advisor uh, Jake Sullivan, has been the only alternative to the course of action that they that they pursued with all the unanswered questions that you, I think, rightly posed, Seth, that should have been answered before these decisions were made, that the only alternative, in their view, was massive escalation. Now, Interestingly, first, uh, General Miller, the commanding general who uh, testified before the Senate Armed Service Committee in closed session, I'm told, basically said, I could have done you know, w- what I'd been doing for the last uh, year or so at the level of 3,500 or so U.S. troops for a very, very long time. We could have uh, kept the Taliban at bay. So th- there's a question about whether that really was the only alternative as they've tried to pose it. But more interestingly... I think that they may, I'd be interested in your reaction to this. I think they made a political calculation, which was that uh, the American public, after a very long, kind of inconclusive, unsatisfying war, had grown weary and wanted out. And that certainly was one interpretation of. Poll data, but the the great political scientist V.O. Key, who studied American public opinion, used to say, "I have you know the greatest respect for the sober second thought of the American public." And if you look at the recent Quinnipiac poll that came out, which showed fifty percent of the public thought we should have kept at least some of the U.S. forces there, fifteen percent thought we should have kept them all there, and only twenty eight percent actually think that the course that the Biden administration actually you know followed was the correct one. So, kind of, what's your judgment? What what, what were the alternatives, uh, and and what's the going kind to of fallout going to be of this for the uh, future of the administration's approach to national defense? Because obviously, there are going to be repercussions from uh, you know everything that happened in August.
2: Well, first, the military itself, as you noted that that includes General Miller, did uh, advocate um, a. Continuation of military forces and argued that we could come down uh, somewhat uh, in in those numbers, particularly over time. So I think the the choice, the the argument that the U.S. faced a, a decision: either get out now and go to zero, or increase and escalate numbers. Is it, it just? It's not true in at least both logically and, and empirically. One is, uh, I Im- mean, Im- Im- logically, I mean, there's no reason why the U.S. was going to have to increase in numbers when the military assessments, particularly those for train, advise, and assist, uh, could have gone lower from the 2,500 down to 2,000 or 1,500. And, uh, you know, Im- empirically, we had already looked at that issue Uh, In the last year or two of the Obama administration, as had the last year or two of the Trump administration looked at going down to numbers well below the twenty five hundred. And so I think the military felt relatively comfortable as long as it could keep attack aircraft and as long as it could uh, keep uh, MQ-9s and and uh, keep keep uh, some special operations forces on the ground. And the contract logistics support. And, and the contract logistics that, yeah, the, the, the logistics, the contractors on the ground and several of the key bases like uh, Kandahar and Bagram, in addition to, to Kabul itself, Kabul International, uh, that I, I think it's just it's 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 a fiction uh, that that the the only choices were to increase or, or go to zero on the polling data. I I think, you know, I went back and looked at the polls that Americans were asked to answer. And, you know, the interesting thing is they were never really given a an actual choice. In reality, a good poll would have said, would you support withdrawing all U.S. military forces from Afghanistan or would you and having the government collapse and end of human rights? I mean, some some sense of the costs and risks involved, or would you prefer other options, including Keeping the numbers or increasing the the polls that Americans were asked to answer in the polls leading up to the withdrawal had zero context in them, zero discussion of costs and risks in any of options. So in that sense, I actually think they were largely irrelevant in trying to gauge how Americans actually felt. And this is where we're getting a little bit more of the context with a Quinnipiac poll and other polls since then, particularly after the way events unfolded. So where, where do things go? Uh, it's, uh, it's definitely early to tell, but, but I, I have to say that there are at least two concerns I have with the direction Afghanistan is going with. One is, is uh, every major adversary of the United States is now active in that country. Uh, uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards could force Soleimani's organization and much more heavily involved now. Same with Grasimov's GRU as well as uh, uh, Zhang's uh, uh, PLA and, M- and uh, MSS, Chinese intelligence. So our adversaries are all over Afghanistan. Now, second, uh, it has a, a reasonable likelihood of becoming uh, a, and already is on, going down this path, a sanctuary for a number of uh, international and regional terrorist organizations. Uh, and that's the direction that, frankly, Iraq went after the Obama withdrawal as well. So I, I think... We'll see in the next year, two, three or four where Afghanistan heads, but I'm not very optimistic. And I don't think we've seen the last, frankly, of a U.S. presence in that country either.
1: You know, I just want to pick up on one thing uh, uh, that uh, the two of you mentioned in passing, that's the contractors. And I think one point that was overlooked in the discussion about, well, can you do anything in Afghanistan with 2,500 troops? There's 17,000 American contractors who are keeping the Afghan military going. And in a way that does connect with the larger story of your book, which is to to wage irregular warfare, this is no longer simply about what governments do, it's no longer even about what what intelligence agencies do—that's also about a, a whole array of non-governmental entities, some of them for-profit companies, but but not all—who also engage in in various forms of conflict, and it—you know—I I think most Americans don't fully realize how dependent we were both in Afghanistan and in Iraq on that kind of infrastructure. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that, because you do talk in the Grasimov chapter about uh, the Wagner Company. You may want to explain a little bit uh, about that to people that may not have, have heard about that. Um, and I believe even the Chinese have, you know, developed similar kinds of organizations. How, what's the future of the, the, those kinds of entities in irregular warfare.
2: Elliot, this is a really interesting uh, discussion it, uh, for, for two reasons. One is Grasimov and the Russians in particular looked very carefully at the U.S. experiences in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan. And what they saw was not just, as you know, the deployment of military forces there, diplomats, intelligence officials, But the Russians also saw Blackwater and Dyncor and other contractors there involved in site security and training, advising, and assisting. Uh, uh, Contractors were in ministries uh, helping improve the capabilities of uh, foreign governments as well. So a lot of activity that contractors were involved in. What we've seen is with the Russians, just, just, just to use the Russians as an example, a heavy emphasis over the past couple of years on uh, expanding contractors overseas, private military companies, with the Wagner Group being the most important. And I think what people need to understand is one, that, uh, that Russian private military companies are generally used in close cooperation with Russian agencies, primarily the GRU, the main intelligence directorate, and the SVR. Although in the case of Wagner, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who has a majority stake in Wagner, is a very close ally of Vladimir Putin. Uh, We call him the chef for his uh, culinary expertise as well. And and so this brings to the, the second issue, which is In coordination with those agencies and with the Kremlin, we have seen uh, Russian private military companies like the Wagner Group heavily involved in training, advising, assisting, combat operations, site security in Libya, uh, Chad, the, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Central African Republic, in addition to what people generally would expect to see Syria, Ukraine, uh, and now even Afghanistan. Ironically, when you look at the sum total of Russian private military companies, uh, four continents, including Latin America and Venezuela, over three dozen countries now, roughly, where Russian private military companies uh, operate. And you know, the 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 main advantage to using them is they are at least quasi-deniable. The Russians say these aren't. This is not operating. These are. These are private military companies, which actually are illegal in in Russia. And they're also involved in the extraction of, of raw minerals from countries where they're operating or oil. Uh, or diamonds, so they've got multiple benefits to the Russian
0: uh, use of them. Not to mention the fact that they help Putin manage the political blowback from these kinds of involvements, because we we know that there is casualty sensitivity in in Russia. There was concern about casualties in in the eastern Ukraine in the Donbass uh, war. It's one of the reasons why Yemtsov was assassinated because he was working on a documentary exposing those casualties. I wonder if we could, in the last few minutes that we have with you, Seth. And this has been great. We could go on for hours. I suspect you—you've written. We've talked a little bit about uh, the, you know, recurrence of terrorism in Afghanistan and the post-withdrawal Taliban, new neo-Taliban phase of Afghanistan. But we've faced some pretty serious, you know, domestic terrorism in the United States uh, over the last uh, year or two. You've written uh, about that. And we also have, I think, a problem that we've woken up to from the January 6th insurrection, where a number of active duty and, and recently retired military and lots of law, former law enforcement, some active law enforcement folks were involved. Uh, in the attack on the on the capital, And that's created, a, uh, I think, a legitimate concern and a very difficult issue, which is how to deal with this kind of uh, extremism in our own military. You've, you've written a little bit about this. I think actually you've written some of the very best things about this because it's very hard to measure. It's very hard to really get a grip on and it's very hard to know how to handle it uh, given the First Amendment issues that raises. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your own work and your thoughts about that.
2: Good, good question. Very relevant, um, and sadly, very politically divisive because there are some substantive issues involved. Um, the, the, the. I think the the reality is that we we have seen an increase in plots and attacks in the United States over the past several years uh, by extremists. So these are plots and attacks. The category is domestic terrorism. So this is not just hate crimes, individual, and as serious as that is, this is specifically the use or the plan uh, for the use of of violence. Uh, And so, you know, it's certainly on the one hand, uh, uh, U.S. individuals, their their rights and civil liberties are protected with uh, free speech, First Amendment. But when they go down the road of violence, uh, they lose that, those privileges. So what we've seen is an increase in the number of plots and attacks by uh, domestic terrorists in the United States. One of the concerns a bit that we've seen is while the number of active duty reservists and veterans is tiny, we're seeing tiny percentages of individuals there that have radicalized we still have seen an increase in the percentage of plots and attacks coming from veterans, active duty and reservists. And we're also seeing, this is a a bit concerning as well, uh, we're also seeing uh, uh, active recruitment by anti-government militias and some white supremacist and neo-Nazi organizations that are attempting to actively recruit uh, from the military or from veterans because they've got, uh, they've got skills that are valuable. They can, you know, they can conduct small arms tactics. They can, they've, they've generally got reasonable counterintelligence. They can, uh, they can uh, coordinate, they can shoot. They've got marksmanship training. Uh, in some cases they've they're, uh they can handle explosives uh, so this is why we've seen in some of the major plots, uh, including the attempted uh, kidnapping plot of the Michigan governor, potentially the Virginia governor as well, a veteran involved in the training of those uh, of that uh, Wolverine watchman's cell uh, that was involved in that plot. We've seen a number of others that have conducted attacks. I, I think the way to start to think about these issues are so w- the data does show an increase in the percentage by active duty reservists and veterans. The question now is what's causing those numbers to rise and how do we start treating, you know, dealing with them, uh, developing exit strategies from the military or what steps can we take through the VA, for example, to provide better services to our veterans so that they don't go down the path to violence, not the path towards Having their own views on politics but but the path towards violence that's I think the direction we need to go down
1: if I could uh, just one you know follow up question to that. how much of an opportunity do you think this creates for these various adversaries whom we've been talking about um, to to actually wage irregular warfare on American soil? Or do you think that the potential price is just so high for them that they will steer away from that? that They may be willing to do nefarious things in the Middle East or Europe or South Asia, but to actually get in and work with groups like that or facilitate violence uh, as opposed to disinformation, which we know they do?
2: Well, Elliot, there were Two things of interest, even in the research for the book, that I came across. I mean, it was not the it wasn't the main focus of the book, but the the first was uh, the use of of Ukraine uh, to train individuals. It's and it's not just on the Russian side, but but also actually, frankly, uh, Azov Battalion and some of the Ukrainian government forces also did. Uh, recruit individuals outside of Ukraine. But the Russians were involved in, uh, in helping stand up and support training camps. And I spoke over the course of the book with German and Belgian uh, officials, including intelligence. Seth, just to
0: clarify, we're talking about, um, I think, right wing nationalists who uh, were training on both sides in the Donbass conflict.
2: Yeah. We're mostly talking about, uh, yeah, far right, um, uh, nationalists uh, who, you know, are sympathetic in many ways to white nationalist uh, views, training and receiving some training by the Russians in Ukraine, um, and and then have, in many cases, have returned to their countries of origin. So that's definitely a concern. The second is, uh, is Russian intelligence agencies, both within the military and within the SVR, uh, have... Uh, provided some assistance to white supremacist and far-right networks in the U.S. and overseas, generally through front groups, and helped spread white supremacists and other fight, far-right propaganda on the Internet and social media, generally through clandestine means. Mm-hmm. So the Russians in particular have been playing, I think, a pretty dangerous game in fomenting some of this generally far right extremism
0: our guest has been seth jones senior vice president for csis Uh, seth uh, it's been great having you this hour his book is three dangerous men i encourage every one of our listeners to to get a copy and read it it's a, a a terrific read on top of all its other virtues it's extremely well written seth you're quite prolific you write on a lot of different subjects of interest to elliot and me i hope we can you know get you back at some point on shield of the republic
2: it's great to be with you Eric and Elliot thanks for having me.
1: Be well thank you uh, Thank you Eric and Seth and uh, we'll look forward to the next conversation Outstanding.